Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The just-completed Munich Security Conference drew lots of attention this year. The annual three-day meeting of security decision-makers had more ministers and heads of state attending than ever before. The U.S. sent its largest delegation ever. One of the high points was dueling speeches from German Prime Minister Angela Merkel and Vice President Mike Pence. The vice president made plenty of demands of Europe. The time has come for our European partners to stop undermining U.S. sanctions against this murderous revolutionary regime. The time has come for our European partners to stand with us and with the Iranian people, our allies and friends in the region. The time has come for our European partners to withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal and join us as we bring the economic and diplomatic pressure necessary to give the Iranian people, the region, and the world the peace security, and freedom they deserve. Angela Merkel's speech outlined a different approach towards Iran. I see the ballistic missile program, I see Iran in Yemen, and above all, I see Iran in Syria. And the only question that stands between us, the United States, and the Europeans is, do we help our common cause of containing the damaging and difficult influences of Iran by withdrawing from the last remaining agreement we have, or do we use the small anchor we do have and use it to exert pressure in other areas. David Hershenhorn, chief Brussels correspondent of Politico, wrote several articles from the event. One article called it the Munich Insecurity Conference. Thanks for joining us, David. It's great to be with you. Uh, can you describe the reaction to those two speeches? Because it sounds like it was dramatically different and really weird. Oh, it was uh, incredibly stark. Uh, really, you couldn't imagine a more different response. I mean, Angela Merkel may have been giving her last speech uh, at this security conference, and she just got a hero's welcome. Right? It was it was really a an elegy, and you had people fawning over her, saying this was the best speech maybe she had given um, in years, if ever. Pence started out saying he was bringing greetings from U.S. President Donald Trump, and he paused because he does this all the time. I've heard him do it in several speeches. He paused, waiting for the applause that he might get, you know, anywhere else in in the U.S. where he brings greetings to the president, and in fact, he got silence. I mean, just a terrible, awkward silence there. No one applauding. Uh, you couldn't imagine different uh, outlooks. Again, the uh, Pence, on behalf of the U.S., sort of beating up on uh, European allies, demanding that they abandon this uh, nuclear deal with Iran, which they are not going to do, uh, you know, just been flatly rejected, uh, really making this presentation that was uh, combative, uh, arrogant, you can call it uh, many different things. But really what it seemed to a lot of listeners was that he was speaking to an audience of one, to the president, uh, who we know is watching back uh, in the U.S. If you remember last year, uh, when uh, the National Security Advisor McMaster talked about Russian meddling in his speech in Munich, Trump was extremely angry, and that hastened uh, him out the door. Uh, this was a, a serious <laughs> concern, I think, for American officials to be sure that they stayed on the right side of the boss. Now, I noticed that Vice President Pence and Ivanka Trump didn't stand when there were standing ovations for Merkel. They just sat there? I mean, you know, there are elements of this. I, I couldn't see them at that point. Uh, Point, but there are elements of this that are like the State of the Union, you know, when, when part of the room may be applauding and part of the room not. But really, this was a question of substance, not so much style. I mean, the difference of, um, of really presentation in, you know, what is the approach? I mean, Merkel really doing an outward looking speech, uh, talking about the need to keep engaging Russia, even though there are obviously many disagreements with Russia, the need to keep engaging Iran. And obviously, the Europeans feel that the nuclear issue is so important that they should 
continue in this um, JCPOA nuclear agreement and engage Iran on the other areas where disagreement exists. And Pence, you know, was coming off of this uh, conference in Warsaw that the United States had organized, trying to rally international opinion against Iran, trying to show Iran completely isolated with Israel, even teaming up with other Arab nations uh, that are longtime enemies to say, hey, you know, we'd have uh, complete unity in trying to combat Iran. Uh, Netanyahu, the prime minister, even suggesting war with Iran in a tweet that they said was an error. And then he comes to Munich, where in fact, uh, the Iranian foreign minister grabbed the stage, uh, Zarif, and was one of the best presentations there for sheer um, interaction with uh, his uh, his moderator and presentation in colloquial English, describing Iran's position on uh, on an array of issues and, and attacking the U.S. So it was quite a, uh, a tough circumstance coming off of that uh, lack of success in Warsaw, and then really no reception at all. Uh, for them in uh, Munich. Yeah, and uh, Lise Doucette was doing the, the, the interview with Javad Sharif, and, and sounds like it was a terrific interview. We got a quick clip of uh, Javad Sharif's uh, demands of Europe. Europe needs to be willing to get wet if it wants to swim against the dangerous tide of U.S. unilateralism. Uh, now, that's an interesting uh, way to put it. And he, um, uh, the, the Europeans have set up this device, a barter system now to trade with Iran that will evade U.S. sanctions. And it wasn't enough for uh, Javad Sharif. Well, this is really interesting because we know that this uh, special purpose vehicle, as it's called, will not convince a lot of big companies worried about losing access to the U.S. market to take the risk of continuing to do business with Iran. But it is a very symbolic step showing the Europeans trying to stay in this agreement, trying to make good on their part of the bargain, which is to normalize economic relations with Iran. Now, what works for Iran is if on the U.S. side, they point to that and say, this is a big deal. What Pence could have done at various points is say, look, this is never going to work. It's ridiculous and ignore it. At that point, uh, Zarif and others in Iran who are supporters of staying in the JCPOA come under extreme pressure from hardliners saying, look, it's not worth it. Quit. Instead, Pence in Poland made a big deal out of the uh, the special purpose vehicle, acting like it's a huge betrayal on the part of the Europeans. Uh, that, you know, was music to the ears of the Iranians. We can say, look, you know, it's not enough. We want more. But at least you can see there is a divergence there between the Europeans and the Americans. The Europeans are obviously making the Trump administration angry. So maybe it's worth it to give them a little more time, see if they hold up their end of the bargain. I mean, more striking, though, is, you know, step back. You hear Zarif demanding that the Europeans do more that the Europeans have, you know, get wet if they want to swim against this this tide of uh, of U.S. unilateral action. And actually, not because of him saying it, but because of their own decision and their own interest, the Europeans are going to do what he asks. They're going to stay committed to this deal. On the flip, you have the American vice president traveling across the ocean, demanding that historic allies do something, which is quit the deal. And they're not going to do it. They're going to reject him. So this is a really striking example where you see the U.S. diminished on the world stage simply because Pence goes out and publicly demands something he's never going to get. He may have been speaking to the president, but the net effect is that you'll see the U.S., you know, supposedly the one superpower, completely rebuffed by its historic allies who take another course of action. 
I'm talking with David Hershenhorn. He's a chief Brussels correspondent for Politico. Coming up after the break, we're going to hear from an attorney for the families of the Yotzinapa 43, and we'll talk about the new president of Mexico and his approach to human rights. Stay with us. Uh, David, is there a lot of angst about uh, NATO at this conference right now? If you've got the United States in Poland basically trying to deliver, uh, you know, make up a new alliance of countries that are going to combat Iran, do, do people just come right down to it and say, well, you know, NATO's in big trouble here? If you trust the Secretary General of NATO, uh, Jens Stoltenberg, no. Uh, he's made great efforts to keep Trump uh, talking the talk, at least in support of NATO publicly. And they will point to the fact that the U.S. has, and this is true, sent more resources to Europe uh, since Trump became president. The belief is that, you know, Trump's doubts about NATO have been more uh, bluster than reality, that in fact, he's pounding on allies to spend more on uh, military and defense. He still doesn't quite seem to get how NATO spending is calculated, which is on each individual nation's military spending. So what Germany spends on the German military, what the Netherlands spends on the Dutch military, that's how they count. It isn't money that pours into the coffers, as he suggested, at NATO headquarters here in Brussels. So there isn't a huge concern about NATO at this point. So far, he's sticking uh, with it. The um, people around him uh, obviously will say that, the members of Congress. Uh, there were some rumors that he might try in his State of the Union speech to uh, announce that there was some sort of threat, some uh, renewal of this idea of going it alone. We didn't hear that. Uh, they People on here credit that to Stoltenberg having gone to Washington but also having gone on Fox News and talked about the huh. increases in military spending <laughs> in uh, the last year and projected for the year ahead. And those numbers, $41 billion, uh, and another $100 billion coming – those went right into the State of the Union. So that was regarded as a big success, that Stoltenberg has really been working Trump, trying to reassure him, you know, allies are hearing you, they're upping their numbers, you know, don't, no reason to be upset. Now, there is a lot of concern, though, about the unilateral announcements about Syria and Afghanistan troop drawdowns. Uh, very disturbed allies who don't know what to expect. This latest surprise uh, demand that the U, uh, the allies basically make up for U.S. troops coming out of Syria. That caught everybody off guard. It doesn't seem any of the Europeans are prepared to step in there. Of course, Russia, uh, Turkey, Iran, all active um, in that arena. And uh, it's a very dicey proposition. Uh, also, this uh, suggestion, which really threw people for a loop, the president uh, tweeting that if uh, European allies don't agree to take uh, 800, some 800 ISIS fighters that have been captured – back and put them on trial, then he'll just let them go. Uh, it's not clear he can actually do that or would do that, but it's been very unsettling. So it's not the alliance per se that is in jeopardy, but the unpredictability of U.S. foreign policy at the moment that really has folks rattled um, at NATO, at the uh, EU, uh, here in Brussels, and at the security conference. We could hear that from, from participants everywhere. I want to ma mention one more thing you wrote about in Politico. Um, the INF Treaty, the U.S. has announced that they are going to pull out of the INF Treaty. And this should make countries and people in Europe uncomfortable if there's going to be more nuclear weapons uh, in the neighborhood. And you spoke with Estonia's president about it, and there seemed to be big attendance on this issue whenever it popped up at the conference. What's the, what's the mood there on that? Well, the collapse of the INF Treaty is uh, very important and uh, dangerous for Europe. These are these mid-range missiles were always it was always about protecting Europe. They can't reach 
the United States. These are missiles uh, potentially with a range of 500 to 5,500 kilometers. Now, the Russians claim the U.S. has violated it. Uh, the general feeling at uh, NATO, of course, is that's not true, that it's Russia that has violated this treaty. But it's not just the INF. Uh, the New START treaty is due to expire um, in 2021. There's a feeling that the entire nonproliferation uh, framework that has existed since the end of the Cold War is starting to collapse. This is a very big risk and a very big danger. And what Estonia's president was pointing out to me, she's about to turn 50 uh, in December, is that no leader in her generation is quite prepared to deal with the return of this nuclear risk. They never had to do it. They came of political age at a time when there was a peace dividend, when uh, these treaties were already in place. Now they're looking at a situation where the U.S. and Russia are both uh, eager to be out of the INF, the U.S., because it's also looking at China. There's, there's a question about whether they'll be able to get an extension of New START. And of course, as you see in the uh, dynamic on the JCPOA with Iran, you know, for most uh, public officials, if they've you know done their homework and sort of taken the, the very important lessons of what it means to lead a, uh, a democratic society or any society, protecting your citizens against the nuclear threat is always number one at the top of the list, right? I mean, this is you know potential yeah. annihilation with the press of a button, and this is now astonishingly back on the world agenda as it has not been really since Cold War times. David Hirschenhorn is the Brussels correspondent for Politico, and thanks for joining us and talking about the Munich Security Conference and some of the things you're writing. Thanks. Coming up after the break, we'll hear from an attorney for the families of the Ayotzinapa 43, and we'll talk about the new president of Mexico and his approach to human rights. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Last year, in a landmark ruling, the courts in Mexico told the government that they had messed up so bad on the investigation of the 43 Ayatzinopa students who disappeared in 2014 that they should start over. The human rights organization that represents the families of the disappeared in that case is Centro de Derechos Humanos Miguel Agustin Pro. And Santiago Aguirre is here. He is an attorney with PRO, as it's known. He's in Chicago to talk at the Eyes on Mexico series at the Posen Center for Human Rights at the University of Chicago. Susan Zesch is executive director at the Posen Center and is here to tell us something about the series. Why are you doing this Eyes on Mexico thing? Well, we put together Eyes on Mexico because it's really a critical time in Mexico right now. December 1st marked the election of Andres Manuel López Obrador, called AMLO, and knocked the PRI out of power. And the prior administration, which was run by the PRI, had one of the most terrible human rights records in terms of dealing with disappearances, abuse by authorities, attacks on indigenous communities of any of the recent governments in the last 20 years in Mexico. So there were tremendous expectations with AMLO coming into office on December 1st. And so we wanted to look at what were the outstanding issues and what way might things go in Mexico. 
Well, Santiago, I want to ask about the this case with the Ayatsinopa 43. The courts said to do things all over again. Mm-hmm. That was almost a year ago now. What is happening with the case? And they're supposed to involve the families of the disappeared in the investigation. How do you start over? Well, the Ayotzinapa case is a very emblematic case of what has been going on in Mexico on the last decade. As you may know, after 2006, the army was deployed all over the country to fight the drug cartels, and that caused an increase on almost every figure related with human rights abuses. We suddenly have more cases of torture, more cases of extrajudicial executions, and more cases of disappearances. We're talking about cases in which people are taken away by state agents like the army or by non-state agents like the drug cartel gangs, and their whereabouts of these people remain unknown. The Ayotzinapa case kind of put a face on this crisis of disappearances. This is a case in which 43 students disappeared on a single night. It is not the only case. We are talking about more than 30,000 people disappeared in Mexico. But the Ayotzinapa case is very emblematic. The government came out with a version in which they said to the Mexican people that the students were actually born and that their ashes were taken to a river by a drug cartel gang. But international experts that came to Mexico to check out to this version actually found out that the government didn't have enough evidence to affirm that the students were killed and reduced to ashes. So... The case has been on the Mexican courts, and as you were saying, the last year, a Mexican court found out that the government's version was based basically on torture and that they lacked scientific evidence, as the experts have said before. And this court ordered a new investigation. And at the same time, we have now a new federal government in Mexico that is committed with the families to push forward on this new investigation. So we have some expectation now in Mexico that the new government will actually guarantee truth to these families that have been looking for their relatives these last four years, as many other families in Mexico have done. The ruling was in June of last year. Did anything get done between June and now? It seems like that's a long time and something could get started. Sadly, from June to December, we have still the last government who didn't want it to take action on this ruling. Actually, they fight this ruling with more than 200 legal actions against the ruling. After December, we have now a new government that is trying to fulfill this ruling. They created a presidential commission to look for truth on the Ayotzinapa case. And next month, probably the office of the prosecutor will create a special prosecutor's office to this case. So we have some expectations that things will move on. Sadly, with such a complex case, the fact that four years have passed without truth and justice obviously make us a little bit uh, not optimistic about the possibilities of actually getting to truth. But as many other human rights groups in Mexico, we are trying to push the new government in order to guarantee truth and justice for the families. 
I'm talking with Santiago Aguirre, and he is an attorney with PRO. It's the organization that represents the 43 Ayotzinopa families who have disappeared students from 2014. And we're talking about the case there, which is starting over again by order of the Mexican courts. I was surprised to read about some texts that had come from Chicago that were new evidence that pointed to involvement with drug cartels that were in Chicago. Do you want to take a shot at that, Susan, and then talk some about the text and the evidence? That yeah, I think for a Chicago audience to understand how close this comes to our city is a pretty important point. Basically, the students in Ayotzinapa were attacked and disappeared after they had hijacked a bus from a bus terminal in the city of Iguala Guerrero. And they were going to use it to go to Mexico City for a demonstration against the actually in commemoration of the October 1968 massacre of students. Well, this is a practice that the students had done many, many times. And the big question is why on this occasion were they attacked so viciously? So what we know from a criminal prosecution that took place here in Chicago, in addition to news reports in Mexico, is that there's a drug cartel known as Guerreros Unidos that has, as a matter of practice over a number of years, transported heroin from Iguala Guerrero to Chicago packed in the panels of buses. And so one hypothesis, which is why the pro and other civil society organizations are trying to find the information that would actually prove it, is that the students basically took the wrong bus. They took a bus that was already packed with heroin, and therefore, Guerreros Unidos, when they found out about it through what the pro has told us, were texts and phone calls going on between Iguala Guerrero and Chicago on September 26, 2014. Nobody knew that they were disappeared on that date, right? I mean, that would seem like prime evidence. Right. I think Santiago can correct us that these texts and phone calls are happening during the evening while these events are unfolding in Iguala. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a post you know, event thing where they go, oh, my God, we lost all that heroin. No, they knew what was going on as it was going on. And so the involvement of local officials, local police, who was actually involved in the actual attack is part of what Santiago's talking about. It's hard to get the evidence four years later, but there are some really good pieces of potential evidence sitting there, we think, in the files of the DEA and the Department of Justice here in the U.S., because some of them were used in this trial in Chicago in 2016. Santiago, is it your expectation that this new investigation will get their hands on materials like that? We hope so. Uh, we have been trying for four years to get to that information. Sadly, our government, the Mexican government, didn't make a serious effort to get this information. And what we found out at the beginning is that the U.S. government will say that the information was not useful to the Ayotzinapa case. But when we finally get to some of these text messages, we found out that actually it was useful because there were names, there were people mentioned on those messages that were relevant to the investigation of the whereabouts of the students. So what we think is that we are on a stage in which it is relevant that the representatives of the families get this information. And we are not sure if there is even more information that so far we don't know because it has not been used on the trials of these Mexicans. 
Mexicans here in Chicago. And we are trying to get even to these people. Probably they have more information and never have been questioned about their role on the disappearance of the students because they have been on a trial regarding drug trafficking. And what we're trying to point out also is that these kinds of crimes of drug trafficking, what the drug cartels are accused of, actually have always in Mexico concrete victims with faces, with histories, and are very related with human rights abuses. The fact is that the policy toward drugs in this big drug war that the U.S. and the Mexican government are involved are causing a lot of victims in our countries in cases like the Yotzinapa case. I'm talking with Santiago Aguirre, and he is an attorney with PRO. It's the organization that represents the 43 Ayotzinopa families who have disappeared students from 2014. And we're talking about the case there, which is starting over again by order of the Mexican courts. Also with me is Susan Zesch, and she is with the Posen Center for Human Rights at the University of Chicago, and Santiago is speaking at their Eyes on Mexico series. I wanted to go back and talk more about the new government's approach to human rights. And Santiago, you mentioned that the military involvement that started in 2006 seems to have been a failure in your eyes because disappearances are up and all human rights uh, violations seem to be up in the country. But the new government seems to want to rely on the military. Is there a better approach? Why does AMLO want the military to be the thing that reduces violence in Mexico? Well, so far we have had mixed signals of the new government regarding human rights. We have a commitment with victims of human rights abuses, as in the Ayotzinapa case. But at the same time, we have a new government that is deepening the participation of the military in public security issues. And that's something that makes us very worried on the human rights community in Mexico. As you were saying, on the last years in Mexico, the deployment of the army in the war against the drug cartels have caused a lot of violence, a lot of human rights abuses. And we were expecting that a new government that got the government talking about change, will have a different approach. So far, this is not the case. The new government announced a new police body called the National Guard, which will be created basically with the participation of the Mexican army. And this is no good news for human rights in Mexico. So we have had so far these mixed si signals, but the truth is that if the government relies again on the army, probably we won't have an advancement on the human rights agenda in Mexico. The army is also getting involved in the economic sphere. Tell me about that. Well, that's something new in Mexico. The new government announced that the army will be participating in some parts of the economy, doing some buildings for the new government, even participating in the efforts to build a new airport in Mexico. So that's pretty new, but this shows how the Mexican army it's getting strength by this new government. 
And what we fear is that will cause less civilian control over the army as the way that the last governments have done it also. We have an army in Mexico that is reluctant to accountability. And when you have this kind of army participating in other parts of the economy, probably this lack of accountability will increase. Susan Zesch. Well, an interesting way for us to think about this as Chicagoans is one of the problems in terms of the Army's involvement in the drug wars since 2006 is that if someone in the Army commits a crime or a human rights violation, they are adjudicated in military courts. And for us to imagine this in Chicago, it would be as if we only had an internal police accountability board and no access to the federal courts where we have been able to reveal responsibility for abuses here in Chicago. So for the Army in Mexico to be able to increase its power and still only be accountable to itself does not present a very optimistic scenario. Was there an alternative for AMLO? What's the alternative to this? Mm. There was. They were talking on the campaign of strengthening the federal police to create also a program in which they will strengthen the police forces at the state level and at the municipal level, which is crucial in Mexico. I think that so far no one is that naive in Mexico as to ask the immediate uh, take out of the army from the tasks that they've been doing. It is true that there are some regions in Mexico in which the army is the only state agency that can guarantee some security for the population. But we expected that the new government will create a program to reduce the participation of the military in these kind of tasks and a program to strengthen at the same time the civilian police bodies in Mexico. When the government doesn't do that and announces a new National Guard that will deepen the participation of the military on the security policy, it is a big deception in terms of what the campaign and the language of the new government when they talk about change were promising to Mexicans. Santiago Aguirre is an attorney with PRO. Its full name is Centro de Derechos Humanos Miguel Agustin PRO, the human rights organization that represents the families of the 43 disappeared in Ayotzinapa, and he's been in Chicago to speak at the Eyes on Mexico series at the Posen Center for Human Rights at the University of Chicago. Susan Zesch is executive director there. How would we sum up where AMLO is at? Because he sounds like a truth commission kind of guy with a broad amnesty attitude, someone who doesn't want to go after top drug lords anymore and says that there's not a war on drugs or something or a war on gang leaders. He has an attitude about restorative justice, mm -hmm. and he wants things to be better for people and security for people. He wants the murder rate to go down. And is that a, an effective way forward? What is he doing there? Well, we have to acknowledge that he's talking about inequality in one of the world's 
more unequal countries and that's important. It is true that we have a lot of population that has been not guaranteed on their rights by the Mexican governments. And it is true that poverty is one of the main causes of uh, the involvement of some communities in the drug business. But at the same time, the new government is not putting enough attention on the complexity of the justice issues that we have to address in Mexico. They are relying a lot, again, on deploying the army on the whole country. But what we know so far is that if the government does not emphasize at the same time the action of justice of actually taking away the criminal networks that are getting rich with this drug business, the simple deployment of the army won't bring peace in the long term to Mexicans. So I think that they are relying a lot on the military. They are not putting enough attention on the justice issue. At the same time, they are attacking some very important issues like inequality. And we're talking about a government that has been on power for two months now. So at the same time, I think it's a little bit soon to have the complete picture of how things are going to move forward in Mexico. We have been under a very violent decade in Mexico. So there are a lot of people in our country that are hoping that the new government will succeed in its efforts. And hopefully they will. But at the same time, we cannot remain silent when we are looking that the military is getting strengthened by this new administration because this is the opposite direction of the other efforts that they are doing. Susan Zesch? A couple of things. Before Santiago came, I was looking at a lot of reports of the United Nations, Special Rapporteur on Summary Execution, Special Rapporteur on Torture, the Inter-American Commission for Human Rights, who had all been in Mexico in the period of 2013, 2014, doing various missions. And those international human rights agencies went to Mexico because there was already a whole set of problems that had emerged in the previous sexenio, presidential term, and into Peña Nieto's term about military justice in the countryside and all of the disappearances, etc. One of the things they all agreed on was get the military out of ordinary security. And it's a huge problem that the Ayotzinapa case, which happened towards the end of 2014, really brought into stronger relief. You know, how was this going to be solved? So we're thinking at University of Chicago, and I was talking to Santiago about it, we should do an Eyes on Mexico Part 2 a year from now to see how things turn out. Because it's true, the government is very new. They just came into power at the beginning of December, and they have a lot of choices about paths they're going to take to resolve all of these old issues. You know, one more thing. They mentioned that they're going to start a national search system, which will begin operating in March. And the Under Secretary for Human Rights at the Interior Ministry came out and said the other day, that there were 1,100 registered but unexplored secret grave sites around Mexico with 26,000 unidentified bodies. And he said, our territory has become a huge clandestine grave. Um, this is an amazing thing. It seems like the search system is about forensic and finding mm -hmm. out who these people are, but I don't hear a accountability aspect mm -hmm. in what he's saying. Well, I will say that this is one of the positive signals of the new government because on the past, 
we didn't have such a recognition of the size of the trouble of the disappearances in Mexico. To have the Undersecretary of Human Rights acknowledging that the country is a, a big clandestine grave, to acknowledge that we have more than 37,000 of people disappeared and more than 26,000 bodies without identification on the forensic departments of the Office of the Prosecutor in Mexico, it's important for us because the last government and the one before, they put their energy in fighting these numbers. And in terms of saying that the crisis was not as high or as big as the international mechanisms of human rights were pointing out. So Acknowledging what is going on, it's a good step. It has been announced a big national program towards the disappeared. Probably that will imply that Mexico accepts international technical assistance on the forensic issues because we don't have what it will need to actually make a real effort in order to have the identification of those human bodies. But as you were saying, the government's actions are lacking the part of accountability and bringing to justice the ones responsible of the disappearances, at least on some few very emblematic cases. We hope that Ayotzinapa will open that path. But as Susan was saying, what we have now is hopes. We don't have already the results of this effort. So at the same time, we acknowledge that it's important this step that the federal government is doing, but we have to say that the part of the justice action in those disappearances cases is something that so far is missing. Santiago Aguirre is an attorney with PRO. Its full name is Centro de Derechos Humanos Miguel Agustin PRO. It is the human rights organization that represents the families of the 43 disappeared in Ayotzinapa, and he's been in Chicago to speak at the Eyes on Mexico series at the Posen Center for Human Rights at the University of Chicago. Susan Zesch is executive director there, and we'll hear more about Mexico in the future and talk with more people from the Eyes on Mexico series, and I hope people uh, look it up and check it out at the Posen Center website and find out more about the people who are coming, and we can hear about what's going on really in Mexico. Thank you. Thank you, Jerome. Thanks. New charges were brought last week against one of the most prominent journalists in the Philippines. We'll hear about the threats to press freedom in the Philippines after the break. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. 
Journalists run plenty of risks in the Philippines. Last week's arrest of the co-founder and editor of The Rappler was more evidence of that. Maria Ressa, a Time Person of the Year in 2018, was charged under new cyber laws and is now out on bail. The Rappler also has pending tax charges against it. With me to discuss Ressa's case and press freedom in the Philippines is Stephen Butler from the Committee to Protect Journalists Asia Program. And CPJ gave Maria Ressa its 2018 Gwen Eiffel Press Freedom Award last year. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Uh, what is Maria Resser and the Rappler doing to win all these awards and get all this attention from the government? Well, if you look at this website, what you see is a world-class, high-quality operation. I mean, Maria is really a unique figure in the Philippines. She worked for many decades as a correspondent for CNN, uh, heading bureaus in Jakarta and the Philippines, has done a lot of war reporting and terrorism reporting. And when she set up Rappler, it launched on January 1st, uh, uh, 2012. Uh, she brought a, a, a very high standards uh, to what they're doing. And, and since then, you know, it's not just it's, a, it's a, a full menu website. I mean, they've got sports, they have entertainment, they have politics, they've, they've got everything. But there's what they're best known for are these in-depth investigative reports, particularly uh, on the uh, related to the the war on drugs in the Philippines, and they're you know they they send they will send the reporters for six months to work on these, and and they come out with beautiful graphics and uh, and just very deep, uh, richly reported stories. And what are the stories saying that the government takes offense at? Because they they banned the website at one point. The president calls it fake news. Um, the whole bit. Well, they're very sensitive about the coverage. Cause, I mean, among other things, they've shown. Uh, that the police are uh, complicit in working with you know people who uh, murder you know supposed drug dealers. There have been you know reports of uh, twelve thousand people who have been murdered in this way, and uh, the the government uh, doesn't like this kind of it uh, doesn't like to see what they are doing uh, put under a microscope because it, it it's frankly it, it's a terrible human rights record. Now, I mentioned before that there's tax charges already pending against the Rappler. This is the, the latest charges are just a, kind of a part of a series of things that have been happening to them. Yes, uh, I think there are five different tax-related charges pending against them. Um, these, you know, the, the, the technical details of this are very complicated, but essentially uh, Rappler uh, brings in money from from foreign investors who do not directly own the company. It's through something called uh, depository receipts. And this has been a, uh, you know, well-practiced um, method used by other companies to get around uh, the prohibition on foreign ownership in certain parts of the economy, including, uh, including media. Uh, and, you know, the, the tax authorities have applied, uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission has applied a very technical uh, interpretation of the tax liabilities associated that, with this money that, that has come in. It, it is the first time it's ever been done. Uh, many companies use this. Only Rappler has put in the crosshairs. Uh, and, and, and it's for that reason that people say, well, they're being singled out because of uh, the objections of the government you know, to what they're doing. And the latest charges are under new cyber laws, and they also seem unusual in na their nature. Yes. I mean, if you, there's a very long explanation put up 
on, on the site, actually, about the sequence of, uh, of things that happened. In 2012, first of all, there was an article in which they named a, a Filipino-Chinese entrepreneur um, as having been involved in, uh, in drug and uh, human trafficking. Because he, and he had, he had apparently lent uh, his limousine to a senior government official. Um, and, you know, they went through the usual journalistic practice. They phoned him and put in his comment. Uh, and then four months after that, there was a cyber crimes legislation uh, that was passed. Um, and basically nothing happened at that point. Uh, he didn't ask for a correction or withdrawal of the story. Um, a couple, you know, about two years after that, there had been a single misspelled word in the story. And Rappler, uh, you know, they corrected that word. And, uh, you know, since then, I mean, there was an attempt to, the, because the law was passed after the original article, it didn't apply in theory. And because of that one changed word, uh, they tried to use that to say it was republished and um, brought new, new, you know, and, and tried to bring these charges. Um, and the first time the Philippine huh. government looked at that, they rejected the charges. And then it went to another agency and they went ahead with the charges, which there doesn't seem to be any solid basis in law and to continue with this. I'm talking with Stephen Butler the, from the Committee to Protect Journalists. He's their Asia Program Coordinator, and we're talking about the cases that are pending against the Rappler, a Philippines publication, and Maria Ressa, uh, the co-founder and editor, Time Person of the Year last year. So if these charges were to go through, though, this wouldn't be like a penalty they would have to pay, like a, like a tax case, I guess. These are criminal charges on this uh, issue? Yes. Yes, these are uh, criminal, criminal liability charges. And I mean, this is something that's, that uh, the Committee to Protect Journalists has campaigned against all around the world. And basically, people should not be put into jail for what they say or for what they write. Uh, now, there's a, there are separate you know, liability kinds of laws, which we don't necessarily object to when they're uh, applied in a you know, in a judicious fashion. But putting someone in jail for an article that was published seven years ago, it just makes no sense at all. And the term is long. It's not a short prison sentence that she's up for? Yeah, I, I, I actually haven't paid attention to the ex- exact um, yeah, length of the, you know, potential length of uh, the, the prison sentence. But, um, you know, I presume it, I pre- you know, Frankly, one day in jail is too much, you know, for this sort of thing. But there's another thing, too, which is why is the government pursuing these charges? Do they really expect or want to put her in jail or do they or do they want to uh, penalize the company for uh, for back taxes? I think it's it's more likely that they don't they don't necessarily expect to win these cases, but it can take months and years to resolve. It's very expensive. I mean, I think their ultimate goal is to put Rappler out of business, not to um not necessarily to put somebody in jail. And what about other Philippine press institutions? Do they, uh, they've got to look at this and say, well, I you know, I don't know if I'm up for that. I, I don't know if no. I'm going to go for this kind of treatment. No, absolutely. Uh, the Rappler is, is the number one target. And, and you can see this not only in these lawsuits, but also things that uh, President you know, Duterte says about them. And you, and you can see it in the kind of intense... Uh, trolling, social media trolling that they are subject to. But others are subject to these uh, measures as well. Trolling is a, is, it's, 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 it's almost like an industrial art in the Philippines. 
um, and they have these troll farms that we believe are probably supported by the government, but there's no way to actually prove that. But they're very sophisticated, and they can throw thousands of abusive tweets uh, against uh, someone's account, you know, in a matter of, of an hour. It's, uh, it's, it's remarkable. And the other thing, too, is the president himself has this habit of calling out journalists for abuse. Uh, and, you know, all of that, when you add it together, uh, makes for a, a tremendously difficult and intimidating environment. Um, and he's also threatened to take, to take tax measures against the, uh, the Daily Inquirer in the Philippines. And that you know, it it it, it immediately uh, forces a kind of caution on the on the part of the journalists and the part of the owners of these publications. Uh, you know, Rodrigo Duterte is somebody who was called uh, the Philippines Trump when he first came into office, and he uses the term fake news. This whole um, milieu, this authoritarian milieu, where, where where if you write something that they don't like, you're you're a fake journalist. This is. Um, this is a global commodity now. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 interesting. I think he has, in this way, taken a page uh, from President Trump. Although he began, he was in office long. He's been in office longer than President Trump, and his attacks on the media certainly predate Trump. But they're they're really you know birds of a feather. Uh, and although I think Duterte is less constrained than the President of the United States by institutions and laws, uh, I think it would be probably impossible for the president to, t- at least now, to take the kind of measures that Duterte has taken. But the, in terms of the vocabulary, uh, yes, it's uh, they're really on the same page. I was reading some quotes from Maria Ressa, the uh, co-founder and editor of the, the Rappler, and she was saying that she's been a war correspondent, but this is harder than being a war correspondent. This is more difficult. What do you think the ultimate fate of um, this and other publications is going to be in the Philippines if they if this kind of thing keeps up? Well, it's it's hard to say. I, I mean, the the immediate danger uh, was that Rappler would be bankrupted. They, they were paying very large legal fees every month to keep going. Now, the Committee to Protect Journalists and then the Omidyar Network have actually come together for a... Uh, Freedom of the Press Media Fund, um, and w- that fund is being tapped to help pay for Rappler's legal bills. The, and the, the whole point of this is to make it so the government cannot bankrupt uh, Rappler uh, with, with these. So, so they they have the. I think I think they they're going to have some staying power. I, I I and if you know Maria is an extremely determined and brave. Uh, and uh, energetic person. I, I mean, I, I know her. You know, I've known her for a number of years, and she she certainly ranks as one of the most energetic people I have ever met. Uh, and she's smart, and she, you know, it's, it's uh, so I I would put my money on her still, frankly. Stephen Butler is Asian program coordinator for the Committee to Protect Journalists. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about the case of the Rappler and co-founder and editor Maria Ressa. Thanks very much. Thank you. Tomorrow on Worldview, we are going to pick up where we left off last week on our Science and Power Politics series with a conversation about technology and engineering. Hope you can join us for that tomorrow on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida and Char Dastin. Thanks to Jenny Friedland and Ashish Valentine for production assistance. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.